Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this is a first for French-Canadian Legacy. I think most listeners of the podcast will know that we have recorded a number of episodes in advance because I would be heading out to Quebec City. Well, this is the first ever episode that I have recorded in Quebec. So if I do sound a bit rusty, that is why. However, I can think of no better guests to be the first interview from Quebec and the guest I have this week, Daniel Moreau. Daniel is a student at the University of Maine and has an absolutely amazing project. I am excited to speak about today. Daniel, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure. Now, let's get your story before we start. So where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Lewiston and Auburn, Maine. So both cities. I grew up in... <laughs> no, so well, I, I laugh always because they're kind of always linked together to the point where oh, absolutely. People, who, people who actually think that they are just one hyphenated named city, but they're actually, they are two different places, right? There was a time a few years ago where uh, there was a vote for a merger. Oh, really? It didn't pass, obviously. <laughs> okay, cool. But you, you said you spent some time living in both places. Yeah. Uh, so I really was born in Lewiston, but I really, you know, grew up in Auburn. Uh, Very cool. I went to, you know, elementary school, middle school, and high school in Auburn. All right. Now, obviously, these are some towns we have talked about quite a bit places that are on the Franco route. What was the Franco-American scene life like for you growing up? You know, before coming to the University of Maine, I really didn't notice a whole lot. Uh, I really didn't travel a whole lot before going to the University of Maine. And so my whole world was basically Lewiston and Auburn. And the only time I really felt at home outside of one of the mill cities was in Quebec because of all of the French last names that I saw. <laughs> Plenty of that. And I mean, in Lewiston and Auburn, you, you turn the corner and you say, you see Labadee's Bakery, or you see you see all these Franco names. Yeah, it's cool. It's pretty fun. So they take a attendance. It's not attendance, but they, you have a name on a list, like for security reasons, when you go into the school that I go to. And the dude at the front actually knows who I am now because he has a super easy time pronouncing my name. A lot easier than those Swiss German names that he struggles with for sure. Now, that's very, very, very cool. Now, so how about like even in your family? What's your family history? What's your family background as far as the connection to the Franco-American story? I think it was either my great-great-grandfather or my great-grandfather who was born in Quebec. But one of them moved to Lewiston. Uh, that was over 100 years ago. And my family's been there since. Wow. My grandfather, my père, he got into genealogy. And uh, I don't know the whole story, but he became the secretary for the main Franco Genealogical Society. His name was Norman de Angers. Actually, he of fame at the main state house. And, and so whenever I hear, uh, whenever I go to a family gathering, some of my aunts and uncles will say, oh, you're following in your and your Pepe's footsteps. And I'm like, I, I don't connect the Franco-American story just to genealogy. I feel that it's more cultural, at least in my experience. Sure. What, so what happened? What was the story of this? What's at the State House? I just caught the end of something at the State House. The Franco-American Hall of Fame. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. And your, grand, your grandfather's in the Franco-American Hall of Fame. That's awesome. Now, did you grow up, like, as far as in your family, did your parents speak French? Or did you have any, like, the traditions or the foods or any the semi-stereotypical things you think of when you think of a Franco-American family? Yeah, both of my parents spoke French. As, uh, spoke French. I think my either my mother or my dad spoke French as a first language, but they both spoke French at home. Oh, no. So did you have any of the, like, traditions? Did you have, like, the holiday traditions? Or did you have food on the Franco side? We always make tortser on Christmas. <laughs> Very nice. 
with or without Wait, potatoes? That's an important question. I don't know. <laughs> no, I. Okay. I, I don't think I'm at. I don't. I don't. So, they haven't really passed down the recipes onto my generation. Gotcha. You so you haven't been the one in the kitchen making it yet. Right. It, it's always the uh, the aunts and uncles, the the kids, basically. Right. Of my okay. mère and père, who who all go to the go to wherever we're doing our Christmas party, and sure. then they make like they make like five tortillas. That's awesome. Very very. To be cool. fair, it's a big family. <laughs> well, you, I mean, I, I think my family can go through five during one Thanksgiving. I think it's very possible. But no, that's awesome. All right, so you kind of you grew up kind of at least aware of this kind of cultural connection. Between the Franco, first of all, did your family, did you consider yourself Franco American? Did you guys call yourselves French Canadian? Did you call yourselves French? I'm always curious because I, I definitely hear different things. Growing up, my parents always told me and my sister that we were French. Just French. Um, I like that. Yeah. One time we, we, uh, we all took a trip up to Quebec, and I, I don't think I was young enough to really know what that meant. Sure. Uh, when when I heard that we were French, I thought we had a direct lineage to France. You know, sure. someone someone in our family came from France. Probably, gotcha. I I bet it was probably my great grandfather. Yeah, I gotcha. And you know what? I didn't really think much of it. I was looking around for college scholarships, and that's when I found something called the Franco American Education Fund. And it was a scholarship that my sister got. I have a, a sister who's about four years older than me. She got that scholarship as well, and I decided to apply for it. Sure. And it required you to do a, an essay about what what Franco-American means to you. Something along those lines. Sure. And, you know, I, I just winged it. I put, you know, sometimes my mère... Makes to makes <laughs> on sure. Christmas. I wrote that and say, and they said, "Hey, guess what? You got a scholarship." That's terrific. Now, who put up? Who pays for the scholarship? I think it's uh, money from estates. Oh, okay. There's like a specific organization that does the selecting of the winners of this scholarship. Oh, the uh, the selection. So the yeah, selecting. Yeah. Yeah, who's the group that gets to pick? I think it's its own foundation. Yeah, it does. A scholarship has its own foundation. All right, that's cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. Right, is your sister, by the way, I'm curious though, is your sister still involved in anything Franco at all? Nope. Uh, she <laughs> she took... And all, you know what? That's fine. Uh, I, I'm, cool. I'm the Franco in the family now. There you go. There you go, sis. That is pretty funny. All right, good deal. She, so, good. Oh, sorry. She did, uh, she took French classes in high school and she uh, studied abroad in Vichy, France. Oh, wow. Uh, in, in college. Very cool. But other than that, it's really, there's really nothing else. <laughs> that was it. That's the list. That's the contribution. Did you take French in school too? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, in middle school, we were required to take one semester of Spanish and one semester of French. And in high school, we're required to take two consecutive years of a foreign language. And I, I chose French because, hey, that's one that's more relevant to my family. And also, I'm closer to Quebec, so it's more likely that I'll end up using that. I was less smart than I than I was. I definitely had faced with the same choice. I took Spanish and I've regretted it ever since. Not that there's anything wrong with Spanish. That's cool. But I don't know. When I was like in seventh grade, it was like I had been around French like most of my life. So it was the first time being offered a chance to Spanish is like the cool new thing. So that's what I did. And then by the time I got to high school, I already had two years of Spanish. So I may as well. And then by the time I got to college, I already had, you know, five years of Spanish. So I may as well stay with Spanish. Oh, I'm such an idiot. Big day. Wait, so so can you speak French, uh, Spanish well? No, not at all. Oh. It's uh, It's been a very, let me suggest it's been a long time since I've been an undergraduate in, oh. at, a, at a university. Yeah. I couldn't I, tell. You still look young. <laughs> That's great. 
<laughs> I'm curious to see what Mike does with that. Uh, but yeah, no. He's so, going to edit that out. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. No, that's cool. So you did have the opportunity. I mean, did you so did you know before you got involved, because you talked about the University of Maine, and I know you're very active with that group there. Uh, did you know about the Franco-American programs at the University of Maine before you attended the University of Maine? It's a really funny story. I'm, I'm so, looking for it. So the first year of college, we were required to take a uh, a first year seminar. This was a, a one critic class with our advisor saying, basically introducing us to college life. And one of the assignments was to write down a list of you know who we are, what our interests are, what kind of scholarships we got, and whatever else. Sure. Uh, from that assignment, we got meetings with our advisor. And when I met with my advisor, I was saying about how I didn't like this class that I was taking. It's a, one of those general psychology classes with 350 people in it. You know, one of those, one of those classes you'd see in a, a movie that stereotypes college. Yeah. So I told him that I didn't like that class. And he said, well, we, we still need to fulfill those requirements, those general education requirements. And I, I see that you got this Franco-American Education Fund scholarship. So why don't we send you to the, this place called the Franco-American Center? And so we looked it up and, hey, Franco-American Studies 101. That fulfills two general education requirements. So, I mean, hey, uh, two birds with one stone. Is that how it goes? That's it. That is it, yeah. Excellent. It, it was about a, a week or two after classes really started that I went to this Franco Center. I looked this place up on Google Maps because, you know, I didn't know where this place was. <laughs> of course. So, and, and so I put it on Google Maps and I, I walked walked there. It was about, you know, halfway across, um, actually on the opposite end of the campus. And campus and is so not small I, there for anybody who has not been. It's a big, very oh, big place. Oh, no. I mean, what would you compare it to? It's not dense. I'll say that. It's plenty of space. Oh, yeah. And so I, I uh, ended up at this, you know, big white wooden building, you know. I went in and I couldn't really find any obvious signs of a classroom. And so I found someone's office, the only person that I found there. And I, I asked, uh, I'm looking for the Franco-American Center. And then she said, this is the Canadian American Center. <laughs> That's awesome. The Franco-American Center is about a mile down College Avenue. And for those of you who don't know, College Avenue, it's it's a main road. It's only two lanes wide, but it's a main road. People go pretty fast on there. And so, minutes, well, seconds later, you see me speed walking, trying to keep my stamina down sure. College Avenue, past the speeding cars, and then I end up on the other side of the campus, and I see this big white wooden building. <laughs> okay. I walk in, I find the classroom, and then a whole bunch of, say, 20 to 30 people are staring right at me. I can imagine strolling in late, first day. Absolutely. Yep. And so, well, you can picture me, a, uh, a freshman. Right, yeah. Right you out of high school. Campus. Socially Absolutely. awkward. <laughs> when you're a socially awkward freshman, and you get 30 people staring right at you, what do you do? But what, what hope did, for the best. I was going to say, what did you actually do? I hope for the best. I was say, having, having been a very socially awkward freshman at one point, many years ago. No. We've yes. all been there. <laughs> all right, cool. So you, 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 you found yourself almost accidentally in a introduction to Franco-American things class. What was that experience and how did that translate to, I mean, obviously you got super involved, super active with the, with the group. Yeah. It, you know, it's my whole journey as a Franco American is 
what I can only describe as one big coincidence or several big coincidences, coincidences right after another. After a while, I, I started to really learn what a Franco-American was and I began to find out that the weird things about my family socially weren't really weird, but we were, we were just Franco. Sure. So that's been my motto with my family. We're not weird. We're just Franco. And Susan Peanut was my professor. Yeah, that, that should be a, that should be a teacher, shouldn't it? <laughs> so my professor was Susan Peanut and she, she has a superpower <laughs> where she can look at a student, a, a Franco student, and guess what town they're from. <laughs> she did that to like. me and it was accurate. Just by what you look like. Yeah, apparently. The people from Lewiston Auburn have a, a go-to look. Did you wear like a high school high school T-shirt or something? No, I don't think so. <laughs> That'd be a giveaway. But now that you're saying that, I wonder. Uh, there might have been something obvious. There you go. All right. Now that I think about that. Wait, now I so say you're in, you're in this class. You start to learn more. How do you end yeah. up working for the group? About a month or two into the class, for somehow, uh, Susan, Professor Panette, found out that I was a, well, I mean, I probably told her that I was trying to get a job on campus. Uh, and I was applying to the the IT place because I, I had, bef way back then, I took a couple classes at the local vocational center on information technologies Ooh. and somehow somehow she found that out i i probably told her and she said well we've got a few computers upstairs if you want you could work for us and you know just work on those and i said geez you know i've been trying to get in contact with the it center for two months and you're just offering me a job right now you know what Let's do it. And so, I mean, they hired me on the spot because of my Franco last name. And uh, Susan walked me over to um, this woman's office and I introduced each other. And that woman was Lisa Michaud. Very cool. And on my first day on the job, they introduced me to the, you know, the few older computers they had. And I, I didn't know what they meant by a few older computers, but they had, tw <laughs> they had 20 computers. Okay. And I mean, one was from 1986. <laughs> That's awesome. So when they said older, sure. I thought they meant like, you know, 2000, 2009, 2011. Not a 1986 a computer. Please tell me it had a floppy disk. It, ha it had a place for a floppy disk and it had no hard drive. It was a Macintosh 512K. <laughs> Love that. That is awesome. That's terrific. Yeah, who needs a hard drive? No, very cool. All right, so from there you get involved. You get involved with the Franco programs, which is very cool. But I mentioned right at the beginning of this, and during the introduction, that you put together an absolutely amazing project. Of course, that is Dawson, and I have to confess, when you first told me about the idea from Dawson, it was probably like a year before you actually ended up doing it. Uh, in an email you mentioned, I, I didn't get it at all. I had no idea what really you were talking about. I mean, it sounded cool. The idea sounded cool, but I, I could not envision it in my head. But I will say to give him credit, as soon as I told Mike, Mike from day one was like, this is going to be awesome. He was from, very familiar with the, the platform, the video game. Like he knew all of that. So he right from the very beginning, before he ever saw anything, Mike was on board saying, this is going to be a terrific project. And he was 100% right. So please describe, I was going to do, I was going to describe it, but that seems kind of silly when you're sitting here. Uh, what is Dawson? Dawson is a 10 part video series where I combine the stories that I feel that so many New England mill cities have in common. Lewiston, Maine, Manchester, New Hampshire, Lowell, Massachusetts, the list goes on. Right. Absolutely. And so I, I saw this story and I, I said, 
th this isn't being told, really. And so I, I got the idea from this other uh, project that someone else was doing on the city of Philadelphia. Okay. And I said, why don't I use this game called City Skylines, which is basically SimCity, which is a city building game. Sure. And I, I do 10 episodes and I split 500 years into those 10 episodes, one era for each episode. In the game, I make a representation of what this area will look like in each era. And then I talk about those urban and those social ebbs and flows and those stories. I took all those stories from the New England Mill Cities and I combined them or I found the ones that had the same, all the same themes from these New England Mill Cities. And I looked at them and saw what they all shared. And more often than not, it was like all of them. Because I believe that the New England Mill City is its own different breed. And I took those themes and I applied them to a fictional city called Dawson. Now Dawson has the same story as Lewiston, same story as Manchester. And so what kind of sprung from that is in the beginning, I would do an intro and then I would spend however time I wanted doing the narration. And then after that, I would do sort of this cinematic piece with music going over it and the music would set the the emotional tone for each era and after that what i call the cinematic i would do the outro and after a while actually after about i want to say six months of writing i did not feel confident in what i was doing i i was talking to my roommate who uh, was in anthropology at the time and i said that i i'm not proud of this um, I don't think that what I'm writing flows. It doesn't make sense, and I don't want to do this. Wow. And so she mentioned this podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Very good podcast. It's an amazing podcast. And so I, I, I listened to one episode, and I was like, wow, this guy can do an episode for six hours. And I don't mind that. So I, I really just listened to literally all of his episodes. All, I think he's out to like 66 now. I, I sort of took mental notes of what he was doing right. And from that, I deleted all of my writing. Wow. And I started from scratch. And I'll tell you what, I spent six months writing 10 episodes. And these are about six pages long i deleted everything because i was wow. not part of that sure and i started from square one again i listened to that and i took notes from what he what he was doing right and after over six months i had a completely new script for each of them that's awesome and once i uh i think it was in i want to say october 2020 is when I did the first recording of the show. And it took me until March, I believe, of 2021 wow. to do 10. Sure. Yeah, no, it is It is really cool. I I can see that now that you mentioned Hardcore History. That is a very cool... That's definitely in the running for second best podcast. I think that, that she does a really, really good job. What I think is cool about him, and I can definitely see what, what you're saying, I don't think he has a script. He kind of has notes. And he just tells a story. And if that story takes him, you know, 30 hours to tell, he'll just break it up into six parts or whatever. And that he'll, it's almost like it, it, it's a podcast, but a lot of times it's almost closer to uh, like an ebook. I mean, like an audio book. It's almost closer to an audio book with, with a lot of his episodes. He has like six parts on, you know, the Mongolian Empire or whatever he chooses to, to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I do have a question then. Um, so you you do you come up with a fictional town? Did you ever think about doing a real town? Like why Dawson and why not Lewiston and or why not Manchester? What made you want to go in the direction of a fake place? 
I have this tendency to be inspired by real stories, change them so that they're kind of my own, and do something new with them. Whenever I, uh, you know, listen to hardcore history or I look at the news or whatever, I see these themes sprouting up everywhere and I say, hey, that would be an interesting story. With Dawson, I felt that if I was doing a single town, I wouldn't do the others justice because I wanted to do the New England and Mill City as its entity. I didn't want to, I didn't want to favor one over the other, but I know I kind of did practically with Dawson because I, I took most of the inspiration from Lewiston. Of course, it's your hometown. Yeah, exactly. And I, I made that very, I made that clear in the, the first episode, the first few minutes. Sure. And so that's really what, what inspires me is stories and themes and not specific things. And the format that you have is super unique. Obviously, you mentioned you have your intro. And from there, you have this kind of narration where you t are telling a story. And as you are listening, the listen the, the viewers listening to you tell this story, on the screen, you can see you putting together, like, the actual town. Like, you're forming this town, which is very, very cool. And then it ends with you kind of get, like, a, a tour. It's like you're... You get a tour of the town that you just created. And it's super, super neat. Did you always know that that was kind of like the, the format you were going to be going for? Yeah, to be honest, I, I copied that guy that was doing the Philadelphia uh, series. Um, I think it's his channel name is Do Not Eat. And the eat. series is called Franklin. And I pretty much copied his his format verbatim. He did... He did an intro, and then he did the narration, uh, and along that, you you can see him filling in the time with images of him doing making the city. And after that, he does a he does music alongside cinematography, like a tour of of the town as you describe it. I think that series was a big inspiration. That's very cool. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I mean, I lived in Philadelphia for a few years, so I used to work in City right. Hall, so I know that town halfway decent. No, like definitely that's something I gotta check out for sure. Uh, I would like to talk about the research for this, because as I was listening to to Dawson, I'm just sitting there thinking, there's not a small amount of research that went into doing this. There's, I mean, a lot of the stories that we have talked about on this podcast. A lot of the stories that come up and stuff, you know, that Patrick Lacroix writes about on his blog, those kind of things appear, <laughs> happen to the people of Dawson. And so that's why, I mean, to me, it was for me, it was awesome because I was just, I was just connecting with a whole lot of things, which I thought was really neat. So where did you go for this research? Because you, you pull in, you know, events from Manchester, from Lewiston, from Lowell, from all these other places. Uh, and events that happened there, all of a sudden you were able to weave that into your story of Dawson. Um, so how did the research, how did that process work for you? Well, it varies on topic. For the the story of the Abenaki and the Wabanaki Confederacy, that yeah. was very difficult because you don't really have many primary sources from that era. Sure. And the ones that you do have are either from... 50, 60 years ago, or from the European colonists themselves. Sure, yeah. I, I was able to find this incredible book called Indians of the Androscoggin Valley. And that, it was from like 1930, 1920-ish. Oh, wow. And it, it goes into agonizing detail on the history and the, the aspects of the Abenaki of the Androscoggin Valley, like where Lewiston is. Sure. So I, th so that was one of the things. And say for the Franco-American story, I, I turned to people I knew, like Patrick Lacroix, Marc Parichard, David Vermette. I, I went, I went wherever I could. Uh, I did most of my research online. I went searching for scholarly articles most of the time. I think the most challenging part of the research was 
for, I think it was episode six, the one where I talk about suburbanization and urban renewal. Sure, yeah. Because that's such a different beast, it's, it's a bit more, it requires a lot of reading. Most of the books that I've read in the past year, year and a half, have been on urban planning. They've been on how the city affects people. And I started off with a book called Geography of Nowhere by James Howard Kunstler. And then right now I'm actually reading Crabgrass Frontier by James Howard. And I've, I've noticed that Geography of, no of Nowhere is more, more of a social critic's perspective, where Crabgrass Frontier is more academic. So unfortunately, I w I, it was really a random choice between the two because back back when I was choosing which book to read first, I, it, it was sort of like, you know, flipping dice just to see <laughs> sure, which one sure. I would read first. The one that was written by the social critic James Howard Kunstler, I read first, and it was only until I was in, on, uh, later in the series that I started reading Crabgrass Frontier, the one that's more academic. Uh, and I, honestly, I'm still reading it. Uh, I, being, you know, being a full-time student with that's working and that's doing yeah, sure. a senior project and winter classes, you know, yeah, there's sure, really not absolutely. enough time for me to read. So I, I try to sneak in uh, a few pages before going to bed. So that that's that's why it takes me so long to read. <laughs> really, the the research for the Dawson series is varietal and extensive. And one of the things that I adopted or stole, depending on your point of view, <laughs> from Dan Carlin is how he works in quotes directly. He does, he kind of cite, um, kind of introduces the context and then does quote. And then he, you know, says, uh, he reads the source and then he does end quote. And so I, I stole that. And part of part of me wanting to do that required me finding really good paragraphs in these resources for my research that would kind of sum up what the kind of theme or the story is for that episode. Yeah, it allows you to advance the story for sure. No, that's cool. And then, and then did you just... Because the writing, I think, is very, very neat. It does not come across as... I can see, like I said, I can see the influence because uh, it's not like you're just reading out of a history book. It's somebody who's telling you a story. And I remember, I think it's the second episode, um, which start, starts with, do you believe in ghosts? And I remember sitting there and listening to it the very first time. And I was like, I, I'm in, I'm a hundred percent in that, that one. I literally hit pause after I heard that one line. And I was like, I am no doubt. I, there's zero percent chance that I'm not going to finish this entire thing. Yeah. So it was. I was. I knew just the way it was. The way you told the story without it being like a dissertation, I thought was really, really awesome. So did you like sit down, just you, some notes, computer, and go? Like, how, how does that even work? Yeah. You know what? I I have to say, I'm so glad for the tabs feature. On <laughs> Firefox because I I had so many tabs open for my research that they were just they were so small <laughs> so so on my first tab I had the doc open where I put my script unfortunately unlike Dan Carlin I'm not that good of a storyteller to actually put notes and go one to the other I actually need to put a script because sure I'm I'm a writer, more not of a that's storyteller. Like, that's like everybody else in the world does not Dan Carlin. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And so I had the document on one tab, the first tab, and then I had like 20 of my sources. And then I, the first thing I did for the script was I said, this is the span of the year. It's going from this year to this year. And then I list about what, what kind of things happen. And one thing that has been really helpful in my in my studies as an engineering student is the thing that everyone loves, the work breakdown structure, where you can, you take one topic or you list as many topics as you can. And then for each topic, you list as many subtopics as you can okay. and then so on until you're exhausted. Oh, wow. 
So that that was really helpful with with saying what's happening in this era. And so I did research for each what I call a story, the things that are happening. Sure. Each story, I find sources and I, I connect between the two or between each one. I say this one happens because of this, and then so that this happens, and then so. Sure, sure, sure. Yep. My first scripts, the one before Dan Carlin, they were more this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that's why I wasn't proud of my work before then. It, it didn't, it didn't move right. Sure, sure, sure. It didn't, yeah, it didn't feel like a, a story as much as like a, a recitation kind of a facts almost. Yeah, a bullet point list. What I thought was kind of fun, the actual towns themselves. Like when you're putting together the towns, like how do you go about, you know, what did the architecture, for instance, look like in this period? Or what would a, a even like there's bridges, obviously. What would a bridge have looked like? Or what would the roads have looked like? Like how did you even put that together when it came time to put together these towns? It took a lot of research. I also tried looking at images from these cities. And one of the most difficult things when trying to say, what would have a road look like in this era? The most difficult part in finding that out is to differentiate what they look like in New York City compared to say, Poland, Maine. When I was doing that, all I can say is I tried my best. <laughs> and one of the big things that really hurt me in the series in terms of the, the visuals is the fact that cities skylines is not a game that's based on history. This game has something called assets, which are basically custom models, custom buildings, and custom vehicles. And there's a lot of them okay. that people have made. And it took me a long, long time before I started recording each episode to actually find the assets that would fit the era. Gotcha. Sure. And more often than not, especially in the older episodes, um, I wasn't able to find all the assets and the buildings that I wanted to. So that's what really kind of hampered the visuals is me being limited to what I only what I could find. Sure. But I, I think I I think I did okay. I think you did great. I think you did really good. Yeah, no, I thought it was very, very cool. I didn't even realize that it was like almost like a shopping list and you only have so many, you know, items that, that you could possibly choose from when it came comes to put the because you put together a whole town you have a it's not like there's the same building 17 times over and over and over again there's a wide variety depending on where it is you know there's a there's a river what, what do the places look like closer to the river or further from the river yeah no it's 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 really really neat i can't imagine that especially as you're describing i cannot imagine that was easy yeah no i i mean it's it's three towns too because not only right. is there dawson which is the main New England mill city with the mills and whatever, but there's also White, which is basically what Auburn is to Lewiston, or right. what I can't think of any other examples. Oh, look at, uh, look at, Brewer look, to look, Bangor, or Chelmsford, East Chelmsford to Lowell. Yep, that kind of area. Sure. Yep. <laughs> yeah, basically the the suburban overflow town, which did have a little bit of development early on, but really only kind of started thriving when suburbanization and urban renewal hit and people started moving away from the city. And then there's also a town called Stamford, which is really the Anglo-Saxon Protestant town where the area was first settled. And so the dichotomy between Dawson and Stamford is really, you know, Stamford is traditionalist, pure, uh, well, not really Puritan, but um, Puritan farming place. town. Yeah. It very very simple. It's very New England. It's what you would see on a New England uh, poster or magazine, and sure. then Dawson is what you really wouldn't see on a poster, a New England poster. Dawson is grimy. It's it's where the working people live. It's where they where the working people work. All right. Well, I want to ask about the music then, because like we had said, you kind of end by you're almost going like on a, a helicopter ride through this new town that you have just created while some music's playing. How did you pick what you were going to use for the music for this little virtual helicopter ride through your town? So that uh, series that I was inspired by, the Franklin series on Philadelphia, I actually asked that guy about where he got his music. And he said this uh, 
a website called Muse Open, which is royalty-free classical music. Nice. What I really wanted to do for that first episode was a song called Vorspiel from Das Rheingold, which is Das Rheingold is a, a Richard Wagner opera. And the reason why I chose that song specifically is because it was featured in a 2005 movie called The New World, which is about the European colonists' first contact with the Native Americans. Uh, and it, it features the the real version of the John Smith and Pocahontas story. Oh, cool. And it, it's a very experimental and artsy film, and there's really not a lot of dialogue. And that song just plays, and it's it's very beautiful, just seeing the, the nature and the, the song is very fitting. And so I chose that. For the others, it was really going through Muse Open and seeing which ones I kind of, you know, I vibed with. Sure. The one that was about the churches, or the episode that was about the churches, I chose Bach's Fugue in D minor, which is one of my favorite classical songs. Um, everybody knows the Takata, which is... <laughs> Indeed, yes. But... That after a couple, two or three minutes into that song, there's the fugue, which is art. It's it's essentially, it, it sounds like modern techno, but on an organ. That's what I could describe it as. And so just because I have that, I love that song so much, I chose that for the uh, the, the episode that focused on the churches. For the, or the one that was, the one about the suburbanization and urban renewal, I chose this very experimental song which is sounds very uneasy so for that episode i really chose this uneasy feeling song certainly feels uneasy absolutely yeah because the kind of emotion that i wanted to capture is i mean you're demolishing half of a town and you're paving it over the there's a song that i'm i'm thinking of by the pretenders uh my city was gone by the pretenders and it, it it's it's uneasy feeling and it's cap it's capturing that motion the that emotion of you know demolishing that town or half of it yeah and i like, want people to feel that yeah changing what the town the kind of the nature of what the town was yeah no that's very cool no that's interesting so you did that for every every episode so you would have finished the all the visuals you would have had your visuals and then gone back and been like, I need a song. Very, very Well, cool. actually, no. I, I would do the song first, and then I would do the visuals just so I knew how how much footage I needed. Gotcha. Oh, that's very cool. If yeah, it like was that. a long song, I would go for a while. If it was a short song, I would I would say, hey, I've already got enough footage. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And you talked to the guy, you said, who, who did that Franklin series? Yeah. On on Twitter way back when when I was starting this. Did you send um, him the final? Did you send I, him the I think uh, I think I I mentioned uh, I I kind of added him in a tweet when I <laughs> sure. on my first okay. series and I got a like. Nice. Okay. So he knows it exists. Hopefully, maybe he remembers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would imagine. All right, that's cool. No, I like that. And you you have ten episodes. Just because it's a nice flat round number, or did it actually work out where you had ten stories you wanted to tell? I guess I'm I'm asking: Did you start with ten and then divide, or did you just go, "All right, this is a period, this is a period, this is a period," and then at the end you counted and you had ten periods? It was a ladder. Uh, originally, I actually started with like eleven or ten. Uh, no, eleven or twelve. There weren't enough stories for one of or uh, one or two of the eras, and so I combined them just to make them more meaty. Gotcha. That's cool. And so you had 10 different stories you wanted to tell, which is the only reason you have 10 episodes. This happened to work out to a nice round number. Very, very fun. I like even numbers. (laughs) Now, for those who haven't, how do you end Dawson? When is the last of Dawson? Where do you leave us with this city of Dawson? So the end of Dawson is episode 10, being at 10 episodes. And I span it in the era from 2005 to now. This one was difficult because it's not exactly history, even though you could definitely say it is. 
Sure. If you're saying history is made every day or whatever. I think it's more current events because these things are still happening. And some politically charged, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the aspects, one of the more minor aspects, is I've noticed that in the past decade or two, there's been a lot of uh, renewed interest and investment in passenger rail which is great. I mean, I I'm with that. when I go yeah. to Boston, I always take the Downeaster. And and so in that episode, I uh, the main focus of it is gentrification. I don't really want to spoil it too much, but no. I, I split it into two types of gentrification. I say community-oriented and developer-oriented. Right. Community-oriented is the one where the community and the people themselves benefit, where developer-oriented is the one that we see almost all the time, unfortunately. And it's the one where we build lifestyle centers and developers build hotels and boutiques and uh, buy up blocks and drive out the, the residents that, have, that are already there and make the place unaffordable. And so after that, I, I kind of uh, put, back my, put back my writer's hat on and I gave a little speech. I say that these cities are what we make them because we are a part of them as much as they are a part of us. They, they aren't, our cities are not the streets. They aren't the cars. They aren't the buildings. They are us. And so it is our responsibility as members of our community to decide how do we want our city to develop? How do we want our community to develop? Now, did you have to ask yourself, is that um, just going back to the politics thing real quick um because you, obviously this is not a politics project you're doing and right kind of like i'm not doing i'm not doing a politics podcast but sometimes, I'm, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole and i guess that's where it comes down to right for me um that's where i get kind of nervous uh just as far as hosting a podcast go and i talk about it a lot with mike is a lot of these things the stories you want to tell whether you like it or not um can bring out a a political reaction to the story, even if you try yeah. not to make that happen. And sometimes I get scared of covering something or having an episode on something where I'm not confident I can, I can present it in a way that's going to be as inclusive as possible. You know what I mean? That's 100% something that I worry about quite a bit. Did you run into that kind of thing when you were kind of writing, especially in some of the more recent stuff for Dawson? The recent stuff, yes. But I think the one that I had the most difficulty with in terms of that is number five, where I talk about the KKK. Right. Yeah, sure. And xenophobia. And that was very hard to me. And how I kind of solved that for myself is I, I made it personal, which is kind of an oxymoron because usually you don't want to do that. But I, I said that seeing these, these pictures of the KKK it's frightening because, I mean, it, so in, in school we learn about them, but they're black and white pictures and they're stills. And so there's, there's distance there. Sure. There's a filter between you and that. But as I got older and I, I found out that, you know, being Franco, my family was a target of that. It, it kind of made me think twice and I was just like, wow. And it made, made that more real and so and so with that episode i decided to go for a more i guess what you could say depressing route more serious <laughs> route okay yeah i don't think it's depressing i mean it could be the topic i mean the topic is not a, a particularly fun topic that is for sure right but it's one it's just, but it's a story that um i didn't get I'll tell you that before, like when you talk about we learn about the KKK in school, sure. Um, did I learn about them in New England? Absolutely not. That's not yeah. something I was aware of at all until I started reading David Burnett. That was 100% new to me. So, no, I think that's it's super important that you kind of are able to work something like that in for sure. That's cool. Now, what's up next then? Post Dawson. You got Dawson. Dawson's amazing. What is the follow up? Well, right now, as of recording this episode, 
I am working towards a a podcast called Dawson Revisited, where I interview actual experts, not just some college student that <laughs> no. did a few read a few pages, and actually get their expert opinion on these topics which make our New England mill cities. I I want to talk to I'm not going to name any names because that's a surprise. Sure. I'm going to talk to people who are involved in the Native American community. I want to talk about people who ha have done urban planning for consulting firms or people sure. who are part of urban planning for city government, people who are historians for the Franco-American community, and so on. The real goal with Dawson is diversity of storytelling, and I want to show that in this podcast that I'm working on. So that should, uh, I, I keep procrastinating and saying, oh, I want to do this just to make the audio a little bit better. I want to do that. I, sure. oh, I, I, what if I just set that setting? So hopefully soon, maybe around the time that uh, this episode will come out or a little bit after that, I'll have the first episode of Dawson Revisited out. Very cool. Has it already been recorded? No. <laughs> so we got a guest lined up. You know what we want to talk I, about? I have, you, just haven't, you just haven't recorded it yet. I have a few in mind, but yes, I have, uh, I, I need to, I need to get on that. No, it's fun. It's a fun, having, having uh, fallen down that rabbit hole myself, I think you're going to find that trip incredibly enjoyable. Well, this has been cool. This has been fun. We've been talking to Daniel Moreau, the creator of the, incredible super interesting dawson series on youtube that everybody has to check out we will put a link in the notes below um, this episode please check it out for sure daniel thank you so much for joining the podcast thank you so much jesse this was awesome now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share but the spirit never dies our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive special thanks to josie vashon for providing the music you can find more about her at josievashon.com this podcast was produced and edited by mike campbell if you have any questions or comments please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.